All right. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome to class number two of The Lost Road at last. I know that uh, those of you who are watching the recording of this won't notice any delay, but those of you uh, who, are, uh, who have faithfully tuned in live deserve some explanation uh, as I'm starting class like 45 minutes late <laughs> today. Um, uh, okay, so there was, uh, as you can see, I'm not home. Uh, I'm on the road again. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, by the way, hoping by the by that my internet connection here is working fine. I tested it a few times and I think I think it should be okay. Um, but anyway, okay, so, uh, but that's the least of my problems, right? So just today, earlier today, I was giving a talk. Um, I'm in West Virginia this week, and I was giving a talk. I was invited to come uh, while well, my, my kids are at camp down here, and I, I was invited to come and give a talk uh, at this uh, at the, lo the, the local uh, uh, Catholic church, the, uh, uh, the Church of St. James the Greater. And it was great. Uh, wonderful crowd. It was really great people. Really fun. To, it's actually the first time I've ever uh, given a talk on Tolkien to a group of Catholics uh, who, you know, it's just sort of brought a whole different perspective to the whole Tolkien conversation that I've ever had. It was really fun. Anyway, it was great. But the problem was it got delayed. Like I started my talk fully an hour and a half after I had originally planned to be starting my talk. So originally I was like, ah, no problem. I'll be on the road by 830 and I'll be out, uh, you know, I'll be back in plenty of time to set up and start class on time. And it through a series of mishaps, I didn't even start my talk until 830. So imagine the situation, right? Here's me. And I'm thinking, all right, I've got to, to even have a prayer of starting class within an hour of when it's supposed to start. I, I'm going to have to do my entire talk and Q&A session within an hour, right? I, I got to be out the door in an hour or else uh, it's going to be a complete disaster. So that, uh, that uh, was a feat compared with which getting through, you know, fully 18 slides is like nothing, right? So uh, anyway, but here I am. And we're all set, uh, and uh, hopefully all should go swimmingly now. Thank you so much for your patience, those of you uh, who waited around. And again, those of you who couldn't wait around but are watching after the fact, I apologize. Uh, and uh, uh, this sort of thing, hopefully, uh, will not happen again. So, okay. Um, so let's talk about The Lost Road. That's totally what we should talk about. Um, oh, hang on a second. I just realized something in my rush. I forgot to do something. Give me a second here. One last thing I need to do. Okay, right. Sorry. Okay. There we go. All right. Good. Okay. Then I just have to do this. Sorry. Uh, it's hard setting up my entire hardware setup like completely from scratch. Open here's my second copy. All right. Good, good, good. Okay. See if I'm going to have any hope of getting through my slides. i got to make sure I have my other copy of my slides. All right. Now, we are so set and ready to go. Okay. Um, so let's talk about The Lost Road. So last time we didn't quite get through The Fall of Numenor. So I do want to go back and I want to I, I want to continue The Fall of Numenor uh, tonight. Um We'll finish that up. I want to take some special time looking at the, the 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 way the Battle of the Last Alliance is beginning to take shape in Tolkien's mind here uh, at the beginning, uh, and uh, and then we'll uh, start talking about the first four chapters of the Lost Road. Um, 
So, okay, so we had gotten... There are basically essentially three versions of the fall of Numenor that we get, right? The first is that just that outline sketch, which we're so we can, and we, we looked at that at really a, a pretty big percentage of the text of that so that we could see some of the, you know, what are the core concepts when he's first writing down the Numenor idea? What is that story about initially? So we were looking at those four uh, sort of primordial concepts of the Numenor story. Um, then we looked at uh, the first prose version, FN1, Fall of Numenor version 1. And uh, so I want to come back to Fall of Numenor version 2. We won't look at it in as much detail, but I want to touch on a couple things. Of course, one thing that you will have doubtless noticed right away is the familiar face that appears, or at least the familiar name, uh, in the second version of the story. But the high place of its king was at Numenos, in the heart of the land. It was built first by Elrond, son of Eärendil. Did you do a double take when you got to that bit? Right? Whom the gods and elves chose to be the lord of that land. For in him the blood of the houses of Hador and Beor was mingled, and with it some part of that of the Eldar and Valar, which he drew from Idril and from Luthien. But Elrond and all his folk were mortal. For the Valar may not withdraw the gift of death, which cometh to men from Iluvatar. Yet they took on the speech of the elves of the Blessed Realm, as it was and is in Erisea, and held converse with the elves, and looked afar upon Valinor. For their ships were suffered to sail to Avalon, and their mariners to dwell there for a while. Okay. Um, all right, so... Elrond, right? Now we've got the transplantation of Elrond. Elrond, of course, those of you who have been studying the history of Middle-earth with me will remember, Elrond goes back a little bit here, but he's never had a brother yet, right? Elros has not yet appeared. Um, and so one first thing to be noticed, and we noticed it last time, right? Elros does not appear. He is not... Um, uh, uh, you know, coeval with Numenor. That is, Numenor is invented prior to Elros. Uh, he doesn't come in at the start. Um, so we certainly don't have Elrond and Elros kind of springing into the story together and having different fates, right? That's not where the story begins. Um, nor even after we get the story of Numenor do we get Elros right away. But we do see that impulse of his to bring it into Elrond's family, right? Why? It, it makes sense. We see here the explanation we didn't get Elrond before. We just got these random kings of Numenor, um, you know, later on down the road. But we didn't get Elrond. Um, his choice to bring in Elrond makes sense, right? And you can see the rationale that he brings forward. Uh, the, 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 the two primary houses of the Edain uh, are brought together in Elrond's lineage, as well as the Eldar and the Valar, right? So we get, we, we get Idril, we get Luthien, we get Thingol, we get... You know, everybody. So, the, you know, like the entirety of the resistance against Melkor um, gets basically kind of sort of crystallized into Elrond, right? Elrond is the, the sort of the heir in this sense of like the entire First Age, right? Elrond is, is, is uh, the whole First Age, um, you know, kind of brought together into one place. Um, so it makes sense. Uh, and, uh, but again, I, I don't want to take this for granted, Right. Notice how this changes the whole tenor of the island of Numenor from the beginning, 
right? Um, and remember, as we were talking about it last time, and I was talking about how the whole Numenor story, far from being like the natural next chapter, um, or sort of, you know, the tuning next time to find out what happens next kind of deal at the end of the story of the Elder Days that we got in, in, the, in the earlier Silmarillion stuff, um, it was instead like an unexpected sequel, right? Where he had to go back and rewrite the ending in order to tack on the business about Numenor. Um, and that's what we got more clearly in the first version of The Fall of Numenor. Now in the second version, this seems to be um, an impulse, or at least the effect of his inclusion of Elrond here, is to make the island of Numenor and the story of the people of Numenor the more sort of natural successor of the story of the Elder Days, right? Because again, all of the the whole story of all the previous material is all kind of encapsulized in Elrond, and he is placed as the king of Numenor and that sort of central figurehead at the beginning, um, at the beginning of their uh, of their of their story. Um, yeah, uh, Kate Neville says it seems like this was while uh, the Hobbit Elrond was not Arendel's son. Yeah, Kate says I mean it's complicated, right? I mean Elrond predates the Hobbit. I mean, his his uh, he is including already, um, you know, as he recalled in one of those later letters that he wrote about this, um, when he named that dude in the Hobbit Elrond, um, you know, that half-elven character, um, we, uh, uh, we'd already seen Elrond in the, in the Silmarillion material, in the, in the Quenta, which was written at least at about the same time. So, um, so yeah, so, so Elrond himself kind of predates that stuff, and yet the Hobbit Elrond, as I've talked about in other contexts, doesn't really fit perfectly with that Elrond. So he's, it's not just the same Elrond, it's not just the same story. Um, but yeah, so Kate, it is really, to me, interesting, too, to see this. Um, we do have, there are some similarities between how Elrond is being described here and how Elrond is described in The Hobbit. Um, but it's quite different. It's obviously much more intimately connected with those uh, with those earlier stories. Um, exactly, Sharon. Yeah, The Hobbit was kind of a parallel universe for a while. Exactly. That certainly is um, uh, is how it uh, how it uh, uh, how it looks. How it how it seems to function. Um, okay. So, but again. To me, the thing that is most—I mean, we can see the, you know, the, the anticipation of Elros. Like we kind of, you know, we know how this story is going to come out, right? Um, and we know that Elrond himself is going to get shipped back to Middle Earth. However, again, to me, the bigger picture here is that more intimate connection. Not that he's, you know, reconciling it with the mythology, but again, he's making the story of Numenor not just. And now, time for a different story about humans, right? Or, meanwhile, in the island of the humans, here's what they started to get up to, right? Um, instead, it, it is very much, this is the next chapter of the people of Middle-earth who were resisting Melkor, right? Here's what happened in that world, in that domain afterwards. Um, so I think that that's pretty interesting. Okay, um, another thing that I think is really interesting about the second version of The Fall of Numenor is that there's a bit of a shift in the emphasis on the moral shortcomings of the Numenorians. And it came to pass that Sauron, servant of Morgoth, grew mighty in Middle-earth, and the mariners of Numenor brought rumor of him. Some said that he was a king greater than the king of Numenor. Some said that he was one of the gods or their sons set to govern Middle-earth. A few reported that he was an evil spirit. Perchance Morgoth himself returned. 
But this was held to be only a foolish fable of the wild men. Tarkalion was king of Numenor in those days, and he was proud. And believing that the gods had delivered the dominion of earth to the Numenorians, he would not brook a king mightier than himself in any land. Therefore he purposed to send his servants to summon Sauron to Numenor, to do homage before him. The Lord sent messages to the king, and spake through the mouths of wise men, and counseled him against this mission, for they said that Sauron would work evil if he came, but he could not come to Numenor unless he was summoned and guided by the king's messengers. But Tarkalion in his pride put aside the council, and he sent many ships. Okay, um, so of course in my subtitle here I have emphasized what I think, you know, what, what sort of uh, uh, seems to me to be the... The, the sort of the chief new kind of moral element here, right? The the increased emphasis on the pride of the Numenorians. Now, you might think, well, dude, like how much more proud could they get, right? We're talking about the people who were already in the earlier versions of this story going to attack the island of the gods, right? So, you know, the, you know, the, the undying lands and uh, and the mountain of the gods. So, I mean, that's already pretty arrogant, right? I mean, how how high is my threshold for increase of, of, of pride? Um but the thing that I wanted to focus on, though, the thing that really jumped at me, yes, of course, um, their downfall, you know, in their downfall, it is their, you know, sort of staggering arrogance uh, that leads to their downfall. But the change in this story is that their pride is itself what opens them to Sauron in the first place. Remember, in the earlier version, they are simply deceived by Sauron. He comes among them in power. There's that early story about the wave, you know, bringing the ship onto land and him arising and appearing, standing on the rock and and prophesying to them of the return of, of Morgoth, which I'm sure was like pretty impressive, right? Um, there's the other one where he comes in the form of a bird. Um, so in both cases, we get Sauron coming in with signs and wonders and, um, and uh, uh, misleading everybody. But the Numenorians, although they're already declining in a sense, they, they're already, you know, they, they, they have the desire for the undying land and, you know, they're longing, kind of getting out of control and they're already embalming people and that kind of thing. So, like, their death issues are, are, are already still going. But, but they're not so fallen anymore. Like, they, they are not opened up to Sauron because of sort of a moral choice that they make or that their king makes. Um, so, um, this I think is a pretty significant change. The idea that Sauron would never even have been able to have access to them had they not themselves initiated a rivalry with him, right? And why do they do it? Um, you know, so the, the arrogance, the initial arrogance, uh, you know, the, the, the pre-arrogance, right, of the Numenorians, not only just to bring Sauron to the island and force him to humble himself before them, I mean, it's already pretty pretty bad, right? But merely the motivation of saying, like, oh, I've heard rumors that Sauron is pretty awesome, that he's more awesome than us. We're, we're not going to take that sitting down, right? We're going to go and put him in his place. This already shows us that the Numenorians are in a, a, a more advanced state of moral decline at this point, and emphasized, of course, by the fact that the king is counseled by the mouth, through the mouths of wise men, that this is not going to, this is dumb, Right? Don't bring Sauron here. He's only going to cause trouble. And, uh, you know, he's dangerous and he's powerful and he cannot come here if we don't invite him. It's like Dracula, right? Anyway, um, this is... Um, the, the, and the, the, you know, so you've got the, the, the rivalry at first and then the defiance of that 
uh, of that order, right? The defiance of that uh, of that advice, um, and we're going to bring him here anyway. It shows that he is. Um, they're further along, as I say, and and it, it, it in my mind really shifts the emphasis of the Numenorians much more firmly towards pride. That that pride becomes the thing which is their chief characteristic essentially from the beginning here, uh, the beginning of their wrongdoing in any case, um, much more so than we saw in the earlier versions. Um, yeah, Thomas, exactly. Thomas Caluza says, it's like Denethor being prideful enough to think he can wholly control what his Palantir sees. Yeah, exactly. Thomas, remember, Denethor teaches us the correlation between pride and despair, right? And um, uh, although he, Denethor, rejects that connection, uh, it's nevertheless illustrated to us pretty clearly. And I think we can see that with the Numenorians as well, right? Um, they too despair. It's, it's in a sense their despair, um, their despair of, of, of life, right? Their inability to, to prolong their lives, um, their, uh, their being prevented from going to the Undying Lands, um, that leads them to, uh, uh, the, you know, to, 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 you know, so we get the, the pride and despair involved in, in the step that they finally take there too. Um, Yes, Yana, you're absolutely right that moral decline is inversely correlated to military prowess and industrialization. That's not like a natural law in Tolkien's world or anything. I mean, I mean, you couldn't say that, you know, all morally good cultures are militarily weak cultures. I mean, there's not a purely inverse relationship, but, but Yana, you're absolutely right that there's a correlation. I think, the, I think Yana, the, exactly where the correlation would fall is not to military might abstractly understood or, or sort of, you know, some kind of absolute value of military strength. It's increase, right? Um, a society that is becoming more powerful militarily is rarely, in Tolkien, a society which is becoming better, right? Morally improved. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, Arthur uh, points out that Sauron standing there and prophesying reminds him of Mandos, uh, delivering the doom of Mandos uh, from the rock. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it is reminiscent of that. Is cer- that's certainly the, the, the kind of posture that he's striking, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Excellent. Yeah, Josiah says uh, that he said he'd say the problem lies in military specialization rather than might. You know, see Tolkas and Orame. Exactly. Um, it's not that strength, even military strength, even you know, it's not like fighting ability is a bad thing, intrinsically. Absolutely. Right. Clearly not. Um, I would even say Josiah that sort of the correlation between military strength and, and like technology like the more the more a society is um, focusing its efforts right its subcreative efforts on developments of uh, on military developments essentially the more that happens the worse of a sign it is clearly um, yeah yeah um, yeah Arthur and Yana are both Mentioning the uh, the sort of the 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 Sauron standing up on the rock and and uh, and and preaching and how that sort of puts him in a 
you know, a Sermon on the Mount, like, you know, like Jesus standing on the hill and addressing people kind of position. Um, yeah, yeah, or Moses on the mountaintop, right, coming down to the people uh, with the commandments. <clears throat> I think both of those kind of... Sorry. <clears throat> both of those authoritative, um, teacherly, as well as prophetic roles um, are... They, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's very much the atmosphere that Tolkien was invoking there um, around... Um, around Sauron. And yeah, Carson, you're absolutely right uh, to be thinking about Faramir's quote about, uh, uh, you know, about not loving the warrior for his strength or the arrow for its swiftness. Yeah, exactly. Um, precisely the kind of direction I think we should be thinking of. Okay, let's turn to the Last Alliance, because I want to get to the Lost Road. Um, so, Last Alliance. So first, I want to start off with a little little recap Right, I want to because in order to compare, I want to I want to look more closely at this. So, just we won't talk about this much, but just to remind you, here's the first version. This is in the outline: the longing of the Numenorians, their longing for life on Earth, their ship burials, and their great tombs. Some evil and some good. Many of the good sit upon the west shore. These also seek out the fading elves. How struck out at time of writing, Agildor changed to Amroth, wrestled with Thu, and drove him to the center of the earth and the Iron Forest. Okay, so, um, so again, this is that first outline, right? And all of this paragraph that I've given here is a description of the Numenorians in Middle-earth after the downfall, right? So we don't get this sort of new chapter being written, led by the faithful, right, you know, that we're going to get later on. We just have the people of Numenor, and some of them survived, and the culture of the Numenorians that survived doesn't seem significantly different, right? We've still got the tombs and the longing for life on Earth. Some are evil and some are good, right? And again, as I said at the time, the emphasis there seems to be, oh, and by the way, they're not all evil, right? I mean, that seems to be kind of the default um, after the downfall. Um, But we do get this some of them are good. Some of them seek out the elves. Oh, and hey, there's this one story, right? Amroth wrestled through and drove him to the center of the earth. Isn't that fun, right? Okay, so then that gets fleshed out in, uh, uh, in the first prose version. And it is said that Amroth was king of Beleriand, and he took counsel with Elrond, son of Arendel, and with such of the elves as remained in the west. And they passed the mountains and came into inner lands far from the sea, and they assailed the fortress of Thu. And Amroth wrestled with Thu and was slain, but Thu was brought to his knees, and his servants were dispelled, and the peoples of Beleriand destroyed his dwellings and drove him forth, and he fled to a dark forest and hid himself. Okay. Um, uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, Arthur, sadly, he wasn't quite thoroughly defeated, exactly. Anyway, so, okay. So a couple things here to notice, kind of as we drive by this passage. Um... First, the King of Beleriand business. Notice how that goes along with, or anticipates really, because this is version one, the first full version, um, the Elrond shift, right? That is to say, once again, we see this impulse, as Tolkien is beginning this sequel, to make the explicit connection backwards to the earlier material, even to the extent of rewriting a significant element of the end of the previous stories in order to accommodate the sequel. Right? And in this case, it's the drowning of Beleriand. So we're told pretty clearly in the, you know, in the, in the Quenta that Beleriand was, was taken out. Right? Um, you know, in the War of Wrath, Beleriand drowns and it's gone. 
he's brought it back, right? Beleriand is still there. Um, this is still a story of Beleriand. So we can see now this, this, the, the struggle between Emroth and Thu, which he pointed to, you know, which he anticipated in the outline, is now being placed explicitly into the context of, like, it's now the next chapter of the struggle of the remnant of all the good guys of Beleriand against the forces of, 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 of darkness, right? Against the shadow. Um, in this case being Thu, the chief servant of Morgoth and his uh, chief surviving uh, uh, representative here on Mid-Earth, right? Um, and now the peoples of Beleriand are destroyed, right? Um, well, anyway, Amroth is killed, sorry. The peoples of Beleriand destroyed his dwellings and drove him forth. So they win, although Amroth himself is destroyed, right? So we get the tragedy, but we get the, the success. Um, when, did I talk about the word dispelled? I think I probably did, right? We can see, remember, like, Sauron, Ringwraiths, that's still a ways down the road, right? We're not there yet. But we can see the anticipation of it. Those of you who remember Thu from the Lays of Beleriand, from, from the Lay of Lathian, will recall that he was, the mas- he was the necromancer. He was the master of these spirits of the dead and of the spirits, the evil spirits that he invested in wolves to make him the lord of werewolves as well. Um, so the idea of his servants being not killed, not driven away, but dispelled, we can see that, that, that word, that one word, seems to me a really interesting kind of bridge between the old Thu, master of evil spirits, and the new Thu, right? Sauron, uh, the lord of, uh, of, who is still the lord of shades and spirits, though they're wraiths in this case. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, good. Um, um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, Arthur is quoting, uh, Tom Hillman, who is too, uh, shy to, uh, to, to, to say it himself. Um, what Balrogs to the left of me, Nazgul on the right, here I am stuck in the middle with Thu. Yeah, exactly, Tom. That sounds like Tom Hillman all over. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Josiah points out that the bit about wrestling, the, the use of the verb wrestling with Thu, uh, seems to echo all the way back to, uh, you know, to, it seems, to, you know, we seem to get references to that or echoes of that in the, the you know, the Sauron's, Sauron's hand being black and yet burned like fire and so Gilgalad was destroyed in the, uh, in the little memoir that uh, Isildur writes about the battle, right? Um, we do get a... Um, uh, at this indication, right, this hint of an actual like grappling match between Sauron and, and the good guys, right? Um, so it does seem that that image of an actual hand-to-hand combat, um, not even weapon-to-weapon, but hand-to-hand, um, is uh, uh, is is still lingering in Tolkien's mind uh, when we get to the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Take three. So here we are back now to the Fall of Numenor version two and the third uh, third trek through the Last Alliance. And it is said that in Beleriand there arose a king who was of Numenorian race, and he was named Elendil, that is, Elf Friend. Notice already. Still in Beleriand, right? So that 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 linkage back to the earlier material is still still very central. Now the name has changed, right? Instead of Amroth, we, 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 we once again toss aside Amroth, the name Tolkien loves, and we'll keep coming back to, and, um, and we get Elendil now. 
Elendil, which his name is significant because, as is instantly translated, it means elf friend. So notice how the alliance between humans and elves is being brought, is being made much more central, right? It, it's, it's been a feature since the early outlines, right? Some of the men, some of the descendants of Numenor hung out with the elves, right? And one in particular um, allied himself with them. Um, but it's now become a part of the very identity. of the, So he's not just like some human king who, by the way, also, you know, hung out with elves. No, it's, it's part of who he is. It's his, it's his name, right? His name is Elf Friend. Um, so that is becoming a more and more central part now of the story. And he took counsel with the elves that remained in Middle-earth, and these abode then mostly in Beleriand. And he made a league with Gilgalad, the elf king, who was descended from Feanor. And their armies were joined, and passed the mountains, and came into the inner lands far from the sea. And they came at last even to Mordor, the black country, where Sauron, that is in the gnomish tongue named Thu, came forth in person, and Elendil and Gilgalad wrestled with him, and both were slain. But Thu was thrown down, and his bodily shape destroyed, and his servants were dispelled, and the host of Beleriand destroyed his dwelling. But Thu's spirit fled far away, and was hidden in waste places, and took no shape again for many ages. But it is sung sadly by the elves that the war with Thu hastened the fading of the Eldar, decreed by the gods. For Thu had power beyond their measure, as Feligant, king of Nargothrond, had found aforetime. And the elves expended their strength and their substance in the assault upon him. And this was the last of the services of the firstborn to men, and it is held the last of the deeds of alliance before the fading of the elves and the estrangement of the two kindreds. And here endeth the tale of the ancient world as it is known to the elves. Okay. As always, whenever I read, especially a long passage like this, always really interested to hear your own observations, right? I've got some observations that I want to make, but I'd love to hear what jumps out at you, right? So please do feel free, even while I'm reading, uh, to begin typing some of your own observations as I go through. Okay, so I talked about the name of Alendo and the significance there. Um, notice how this is, uh, again, Gilgalad, the elf king who is descended from Feanor. Once again, we get the Beleriandic pedigree, right? We're, we're, you know, right back to the Quenta. This is clearly a continuation, you know, sort of the next chapter of that story. Um, uh, it's, of course, is of course, the birth of Mordor. As Christopher Tolkien says, this is certainly the first time the name Mordor is ever used. Um, so, uh, uh, so that's, so that's fun. Um, uh, yeah, Marie uh, Gilgalad is a descendant of Feanor here, uh, exactly. So uh, that's uh, uh, that is that is that is fun. Though that's going to change. Gilgalad's uh, uh, family tree changes a lot, actually. Um, so you notice what else is different here? The elf also dies, right? Elendil and Gilgalad, just as. The alliance is a more central part of the story in that it's reflected in Elendil's own name. This is now no longer the story of the heroic Numenorean-descended king who rose up and wrestled with Sauron and died but drove him away. That was the story before. That's not the story now, right? Now it's the story of how the elven king and Elendil together both wrestled with him and both were killed, right? So we, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more egalitarian. Um, <laughs> yeah, Maria... Uh, Marie would like to ask Gogolad, who's your daddy? Indeed, that's a question Tolkien had a hard time answering um, for, uh, uh, for, for, for a long time. Um, okay. Um, more. What else? 
what else do we see? What else do we notice? Of course, but it is sung sadly that the war with Thu hastened the fading of the Eldar. Right? This is not just the last time that the elves and the and the uh, and the humans are going to be allied with each other. It's something that actually hastens the fading of the elves. And once again, we see how this story, because this is the last episode of the sequel, right? Of the of the first age. And we see how Tolkien is bringing the end of that story around to the same place that the story originally ended, namely the fading of the elves and the dominion of men. And so he's so to me it's very interesting that we come back to the same place and we see again a new explanation um, for why the elves are fading, right? Or at least why they're fading so fast and why the dominion of men comes on in the way that it does. But also, the fact that this happens as a consequence not of sort of rebelling against the Valar and going to Middle-earth, which is one of the things that we see. I mean, for those of you who didn't read it with us, one version of the story of the fading of the elves originally was that the elves who came to the War of Wrath, the elves who came to fight to, to fight against Melkor and rescue the Noldor and the rest of them, you know, the Sindar and the rest of them that were there, um, so that, you know, the the the, uh, the force which comes and, and saves the day at the end was a rebellious force. Like, the Valar told them not to go, and they went in defiance of the Valar and got in trouble for it and weren't allowed back home. So that was one version of the story uh, as we got it in previous versions. So you can see how the story of the Last Alliance puts a very different spin on the fading of the elves. I think it's still tragic, right? Still sad. It's still sung sadly. Um, we still miss the elves when they fade and are gone, um, but they go out a little differently, right? In both cases, they were going out in a blaze of glory, right? They were going out doing a good thing, even a self-sacrificial thing, um, but now it's done in alliance with humans, Um in that much more kind of equal alliance. Um, not just saving their own kindred and also the men who happen to be allied with them, um, but really coming in and helping to establish so that the dominion of men is not only... not only comes about because the elves fade, but the elves fade because they are sacrificing themselves in order to bring about a peaceful dominion of men, right? Not under the power of Sauron. So... That's pretty fascinating, right? That's a really interesting uh, sort of take on the story of the fading of the elves, which is quite different than we got before. But wait, there's more, right? The second version of the fall of Numenor is the last version that we get of this before he comes back and revises it and turns it into the Akalabaith. But um, he redoes the Last Alliance, right? Um, he doesn't retell the whole story, but he does retell the Last Alliance story. So here's the fourth version of the Last Alliance. But there remains a legend of Beleriand. Now that land had been broken. Now that land had been broken in the great battle with Morgoth, and at the fall of Numenor and the change of the fashion of the world, it perished. For the sea covered all that was left, save some of the mountains that remained as islands, even up to the feet of Arid Linden. But that land where Luthien had dwelt remained, and was called Linden. A gulf of the sea came through it, and a gap was made in the mountains through which the river Loon flowed out. But the land that was left north and south of the gulf, the elves... Uh, sorry, but in the land that was north and south of the gulf, the elves remained, and Gilgalad, son of Felagund, son of Finrod, was their king. 
and they made havens in the Gulf of Loon, whence any of their people, or any of the other elves, or any other of the elves that fled the darkness and sorrow of Middle-earth, could sail into the true west and return no more. In Lindum, Sauron had as yet no dominion. Okay. See, what this is only half of it. I've got another slide in which we do the other half of this new text. But notice what's interesting. Uh, what's missing from this opening of the Last Alliance? Anybody notice uh, a distinct lack of something? Right. Remember, this is our. This is the last chapter. This is the last segment of the Fall of Numenor. What's missing from this? Men, Michael. Exactly. Any reference to Numenor whatsoever? Right. Um, this is this is an elf story. Right in this version, it, it, this is contextualized entirely as an elf story. So we're no, we're no longer just creating a link between the later Numenor story and the elf stories of the of the earlier ages. Right? No, no, no. This is explicitly the and he's tying it more more distinctly, um, not just like by saying things like this is the land where Luthien had dwelt and all that kind of thing. Right? Um, but he's returning back. He's undoing the revision that he had made in order to accommodate the sequel, right? No, actually, Beleriand still still drowned, right? He goes back to that and tells this whole entirely elf-centered focus. And notice, in Linden, Sauron had as yet no dominion, right? So Gilgalad, you know, they, they, they you know, told Sauron to talk to the hand, right? They were having none of it. So we have this solidarity of the elves. We have this strength of the elves to resist Sauron. He has no power over them, right? That's the context in which the story begins. But wait, there's more. And it is said that the brethren Elendil and Valandil, escaping from the fall of Numenor, came at last to the mouths of the rivers that flowed into the western sea. And Elendil, that is, elf friend, who had aforetime loved the folk of Arisea, came to Linden and dwelt there a while and passed into Middle-earth, and established a realm in the north. But Velandil sailed up the great river Anduin, and established another realm far in the south. But Sauron dwelt in Mordor, the black country, and that was not very distant from Ondor, the realm of Velandil. And Sauron made war against all elves and all men of Westerness, or others that aided them, and Velandil was hard-pressed. Therefore Elendil and Gilgalad, seeing that unless some stand were made, Sauron would become lord of all Middle-earth, they took counsel together, and they made a great league. And Gilgalad and Elendil marched into Middle-earth, and gathered force of men and elves, and they assembled at Imladrist. Okay. Um, uh, uh, what do you notice? <laughs> Marie notices that now Gilgalad is Finrod Felagun's son. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's, Gilgalad is going to wander around the elvish genealogies pretty much for Tolkien's entire life. Uh, he's, it's, it's, uh, um, um, a lot of people don't realize how much of a quick, of a, how much of a trick question is, uh, who was Gilgalad's dad? <laughs> right? It's way more of a trick question uh, than, uh, than, it, than it might seem at first. Um, anyway, okay. So Michael asks a great question. Is Linden not Middle-earth? Uh, yeah, it is. It is. Beleriand was Middle-earth too, right? It was part of the Great Lands. I mean, there was Valinor and then there was Middle-earth. So um, it's always been Middle-earth, but it's a land apart, right? 
because and and Michael, that's exactly what we I what I think is one of the chief emphases there in the first half of this account, right? Or at least the first half of as much of this account as we get. It's obviously not done uh, when he when he cuts it off here, but. Um, uh, but anyway, it's it's so it's a part of Middle Earth, Michael. But it's obviously set apart, right? It is the place where Gilgalad, Gilgalad lives. It is the place, essentially, where the Elder Days are still going on, right? Um, it is established explicitly as the link back to the Undying Land, right? It's the uh, it's the place. How does he say? Let me make sure I get this right. Um, whence any of their people or any of the elves that fled from the darkness and sorrow of Middle-earth could sail into the true west and return no more, right? Uh, the, the straight road that still exists, right, that is operating on this plane above the rounded world, right, um, uh, that departs from, from Linden, right? Linden is in this way literally still in contact with the Elder Days, with the Old World. Um, so, okay, having established that, as this very different thing. Now we have the Numenorean kingdoms finally come in. And, uh, and what happens? Um, uh, we get the brothers, Elendil and Velandil, right? So we get the establishment of the two kingdoms, right? So they come from Numenor. And we can tell who they are, right? Their names are very significant. We saw the significance of Elendil's name in the previous one, right? Um, we know the significance of Velandil's name as it becomes a major part of the Lost Road, right? Um, so you've got, like, the elf elf friend and the friend of the Valar, and they, uh, they are brothers, and they come to Middle-earth and establish these two kingdoms. Notice how far away we are from the early outline where, like, the, the remnants of Numenor are still just, they're still Numenoring, right? They're in Middle-earth. They're still doing their Numenor thing. Um, but then one arises from among them who does this extraordinary thing. But, you know, they were all kind of mostly bad. But some of them were good. You know, it was okay. Here we get now a different story where the two brethren who survive Numenor, Elendil and Velandil, elf friend and Valar friend, you know, god friend, they... They are the two who arrive in Middle-earth and establish kingdoms. So now the Numenorean kingdoms in exile are distinctly elf-friendly, Valar-friendly. This is not the survival of Numenor. This is not Numenor continuing into Middle-earth as we got before. This is a revival, right? This is a renewal. This is setting back the clock on Numenor. That now these descendants of Numenor who have not fallen away, who have not given into that pride and attacked the Valar, they are establishing kingdoms and they're working with the elves. Of course, right? Of course Elendil joins with Gilgalad, right? His name is Elfriend for crying out loud, right? What else would he do? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, James, it is interesting that in the realm in the north, the realm in the north occurs especially because of Elendil's friendship with the elves. Exactly. He's, he, he, he lives there because Gilgalad is nearby, right? He hangs out near, near Gilgalad. Um, also, I will say, the so two things. First, in the notes, as Christopher Tolkien explains them, um, this version of the, you know, this, this, this version of the Last Alliance is late. I mean, he came back to, to, to redo this later on. Um, the reference to Ondor shows that he's already doing the Lord of the Rings. Um, as Christopher Tolkien says, it's very clear that the realm of Gondor, uh, which was originally called Ondor, 
um, is a, is a is an invention from the Lord of the Rings process, and we'll look at that if we end up going on to do the Return of the Shadow next. Um, so the fact that Ondor is mentioned by name suggests that this these paragraphs are being written after he's already working on the Lord of the Rings. But you'll notice that that means while he's already working on the Lord of the Rings, we don't have a Sildor yet, right? We don't have a Sildor and Inarian. We don't have a Lendl and his sons. We have a Lendl and his brother, Valandil. Um, and in a sense, that seems to me to um, that seems to me to make a little bit more sense, right? Um, it's one of the things that to me is really fun about reading the history of Middle Earth is there's so many times that we come across things, and you know I'll just kind of remember back to when I was you know first reading these and thinking about these you know when I was a teenager, and and I'll have these moments where I'm like oh I always wondered about that right but I've long since you know ceased to I, I've long since familiarized myself with it enough that I, you know it doesn't strike me as strange anymore but I can remember originally finding it strange um, not that I mean, we're told in the Lord of the Rings that Elendil's ships and uh, uh, Isildur and Anarion's ships are separated in the Great Storm nothing strange about that right and so Elendil washes up in, nor- in uh, up in the north and Isildur and Anarion eventually come into port down in the south nothing strange about them being separated but I, it always struck me as a little bit odd of them establishing different and parallel kingdoms, right? I mean, if if they were separated like this, why why didn't they, you know, sort it out, right? They had the Palantiri, right? So uh, why didn't they, you know, why didn't, um, you know, why didn't uh, Isildur make a, you know, why, I, I almost said pick up the phone. Why, why didn't he pick up the phone? Why didn't he pick up the Palantir, right, and make a call, right? Hey, Dad. What's up? Where are you guys? Right? Oh, way up in the north? Yeah, we're down here in the south. Yeah, Sauron lives like right across the street. It's kind of inconvenient. Can we come up and join you? Right? I thought maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe we'd make one unified kingdom instead of like two totally separate kingdoms surround, you know, d- separated by hundreds of leagues of empty land. Right? I mean, that, that, that was always, I mean, I remember having that thought earlier on before, you know, it began to seem to me totally inescapable that that's obviously how it would happen. Um, this version of the story helps to me. I mean, that kind of makes a little bit more sense for, of two brothers to be establishing two kingdoms, not for them to be, you know, in, in a way in which it never seemed to me totally intuitive why Elendil's sons didn't just come up and join his kingdom instead. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, now, as we know, Velando is going to have a different role, and he's going to be re- he's going to be replaced, and his name is going to be displaced. But of course, this connection between Elendil and Velando—that is, not between those two brothers in this story, but those two concepts, Elendil and Velando—are um, going to be obviously very important as we go into the Lost Road. Um, and uh, I. You know, we, we we can kind of guess where the story is. We don't get anything past them assembling at Imladrist, which has a T for some reason. Um, but uh, I mean, obviously, we can guess where we're headed, right? Probably Elendo and Gilgalad are still gonna are still gonna 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 bite it. Um, but then what? What's gonna happen to Vilandil, right? What's gonna be his role? Um, was he gonna do the Isildur thing? Was that what's gonna happen? Was he gonna cut the you know, ring from Sauron's hand. Was he going to be the survivor who was going to establish the kingdom? In which case, which kingdom was it going to be? 
uh, were they all three of them going to die? You know, uh, um, the casualty count had been increasing, right? It was originally just Amroth. Then it became Oendel and Gilgalad, right? Was it going to be Oendel and Gilgalad and Volendel in this version? I wonder. I don't really know. Um, and yeah, Yona, you're right. There's no mention of any ring yet, so we're not there. Um, but uh, but again, I'm, I'm again I'm thinking of uh, Velando in that in that Isildur role, right, of being the one who survives. You know, the one who uh, uh, the one who, who who sort of triumphs and lives of the uh, of the three of them. Um, okay, um, so we don't know where this is going, but this is where this is as far as we get in the fall of Numenor. Time to shift to the Lost Road. So one thing I want to acknowledge at the beginning as we start talking about the Lost Road is that um, it's, it's hard to escape the intensely autobiographical element of this story, right? I mean, those of you who have been, you know, listening to me and taking classes from me for a while know that I don't like talking about Tolkien's life. I don't like the kind of... I, I share Tolkien's... Um, uh, uh, distaste at the kind of interpretation that always wants to either draw conclusions about Tolkien's life based on the stories that he writes, or conversely, draw conclusions about Tolkien's stories because of what we know about his life. And both of those things seem to me very much oversimplified and uh, very much uh, as likely to be right as wrong or as likely to be misleading as helpful. Um, so usually I don't go there at all. But you can't escape it in The Lost Road. There are two um, there are two stories that Tolkien wrote where the autobiographical element you just can't escape. You can't run from it. Um, it's, it's really prominent and Marie was just talking about it. It's this and Leaf by Nickel. Um, but Marie, I would say this more than Leaf by Nickel. I mean, this this uh, this ten times as much as Leaf by Niggle. Uh, Niggle is, obvi- is obviously related to Tolkien himself and sort of embodies many of Tolkien's own attitudes and things. But at least Niggle isn't exactly the same. I mean, Niggle is at least a painter, right? We, we at least have a kind of, a, you know, a parallel instead of a, an exact... But Alboin, I mean, the the... You know, like the career that he has and the, you know, his academic focus and everything. It's almost exactly right. So I just wanted to draw some attention and and I'm doing this. I don't want to take things for granted. I know many of you know these things and I don't want to I don't want you guys to think that I'm uh, oversimplifying. But I do want to make sure people because I I don't want to assume that everybody knows all this stuff already. Um, There are many of the things that are kind of put into Alboin's mouth here, um, which are. Tolkien's own opinions and theories and ideas, right? And we see him expressing them through Alboin. Um, one major example here. Um, and Brianna, you're right. Tolkien was a painter. Um, not quite like Nickel, but anyway, yeah, no, you're right. You're right, Brianna. You're right. Anyway, okay. Um, example. But Alboin liked the flavor of the older northern languages quite as much as he liked some of the things written in them. He got to know a bit about linguistic history, of course. He found that you rather had it thrust on you, anyway, by the grammar writers of unclassical languages. Um, footnote. I don't think that everyone who's ever studied northern languages felt that linguistic history was thrust upon them in the same way that Tolkien kind of took to it. Anyway, but whatever. Not that he objected. 
Excuse me, Alboin. Did I say Tolkien? I meant Alboin. Not that he objected. Sound changes were a hobby of his at the age when other boys were learning about the insides of motor cars. But although he had some idea of what were supposed to be the relationships of European languages, it did not seem to him quite all the story. The languages he liked had a definite flavor, and to some extent a similar flavor, which they shared. It seemed, too, in some way related to the atmosphere of the legends and myths told in the, in the languages. Um, so, yeah, Mary, exactly. This is um, the way that he... T not just what he says about language, but the way he talks about it. Um, the word flavor, right? That was a word that Tolkien used when he was just trying to explain how he felt about, you know, why did he like Northern languages so much? Why did he spend so much time with, uh, you know, with Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse and Welsh and things like that? You know, why, why, why did he like those? Um, why did he drop Latin and Greek in favor of, uh, of philology and, and, you know, Germanic philology especially? Um, <laughs> yeah, Karina says, uh, you know, the older northern languages tastes like sorrow and heroic defeat. Uh, yeah, yeah, it sure does. Um, uh, so, so anyway, I mean, this is... This is not only exactly a kind of thing that Tolkien could have said, this is exactly a thing that Tolkien did say about himself. And, and again, it's not just a parallel, this is exactly Tolkien's own opinion. So, again, like you, can't, um, you cannot make an argument that Alboin is not expressing um, you know, Tolkien's own opinions, you know, that Alboin is not connected to Tolkien um, autobiographically. Um, which then is an interesting stepping off point. So, okay, considering that he puts so many of his own opinions and his own experiences and his own points of view growing up and all that stuff into Alboin's mind and mouth, um, does that mean, then, that the other things that Alboin does and says are also like Tolkien's own experience? That is, where does I am trying to articulate my own experience stop, and when does... I am writing a fantasy story about time travel, begin, right? And that line in The Lost Road is, to me, a really fascinating kind of question. Take, for instance, this passage. Uh, this is when his father uh, has, you know, his father Oswin has just asked him about um, his uh, elf Latin, right? How is your Arisaean coming on? Oh, I haven't done anything of that sort for a long while. At least, hardly anything, said, Albi said Alboin. It isn't getting on too well, then. Not lately. Too much else to do, I suppose. But I got a lot of jolly new words a few days ago. I am sure Lomelinde means nightingale, for instance. And certainly Lome is night, though not darkness. The verb is very sketchy, still, but he hesitated. Reticence and uneasy conscience were at war with his habit of what he called partnership with the pater, and his desire to unbosom the secret anyway. But the real difficulty is that another language is coming through as well. It seems to be related, but quite different, much more, more northern. Alda was a tree, a word I got a long time ago. In the new language, it is galav and orn. The sun and moon seem to have similar names in both, Anar and Isil, beside Anor and Ithil. I like the first one, then the other, in different moods. Beleriandic is really very attractive, but it complicates things. So 
So what do we see here? What exactly are we getting from Tolkien here? So, okay, because we have two things going on at once. Or do we, right? On the one hand, we have Alboin as voicing many of Tolkien's own quite private thoughts about language. Remember, this is early, right? We're talking 1936, 1937, he's writing this. So um, this is not Tolkien looking back on this from years later, right? Not from like the time he was writing A Secret Vice. This is Tolkien very early on, uh, sort of secretly putting some of his... Uh, before anyone would recognize it, right? Now, you know, after the fact having read all the other stuff that Tolkien write, wrote, we can recognize this, right? We come to him like, oh, yeah, that's Tolkien himself, right? But if Alan and Unwin had accepted The Lost Road for publication, and these chapters, remember, as Christopher says, were sent to the, he sent these out for publication. He didn't just write these, right? Um, had Alan and Unwin accepted The Lost Road for publication, which they didn't, um, who would have gotten it, right? No one would have gotten it. Almost nobody would have gotten it. Um, would have understood that this was Tolkien speaking wholly autobiographically. It just would have seemed like a kind of an idiosyncratic kind of fiction, right? Um, but anyway, okay, so the one thing we have is Tolkien articulating his own experience with language. And on the other hand, we have this fiction story, this fantasy story of um, Alboin and time travel. The, he describes the words as coming through. Right, I love the shift within the context of this um, of this uh, of this uh, passage. Right, how at the beginning his father asks him, um, his father asks him, "How's your elf Latin coming?" Right, and he asks it. it like, when he asks it, <clears throat> the implication is that he's he's assuming that his son is making it up. Right. Oh yeah, you were inventing a language, right? How's your how's your made-up language coming? And at first, Alboin responds on the same level, right? I haven't done anything of that sort for a long while. Oh yeah, that pastime I used to have of making up languages, haven't made anything up lately, right? Um again at first. And his father's response, it isn't getting on too well then, is in the same mode. Right? Getting on. Like, have you completed that project that you set yourself to? Right? That project of making up the languages. But that's not what, uh, how he goes on to talk about it. I got a lot of jolly new words a few days ago. Not, I made them up. Not, I thought of. Right? I got them. I received them. And then the way he goes on talking about it, I'm sure that this is what this means. Not... You know, I think I'm going to make Lomelinde mean nightingale. And then, like, Lome could mean night, but not darkness. Wouldn't that be cool? Right? He doesn't sound like somebody who's inventing. He talks like someone who's discovering. I think Lomelinde means nightingale. And then he talks about this other language, right? So, yeah, awkward thing. There's this other language coming through. Notice that, that phrase. Another language is coming through. Like there's a, a, a wall, a permeable wall between him and where the languages come from, right? And they're slipping through cracks in that wall or something. And he's picking them up. Um, 
but he's definitely not inventing, right? This is not a creative project in that sense. Is this setting up the fantasy story of time travel? It absolutely is. But at the same time, this is very like how Tolkien himself... So so wait, does that mean we're not talking about autobiography anymore, right? No, this is in fact how Tolkien talks about language and even about language invention. Um, It's very much like exactly... Who was it who just said that? Yana, exactly Yana, just like in Leaf by Nickel. Um, it's exactly the way that Leaf, that Nigel talks about the leaves in his painting, right? Um, he's not making them up. He is trying to capture them, right? He has this, he's, he's gotten a glimpse of them, and he's trying to transmit the glimpse through his painting. But it's not about him. They're not coming out of his head. They're, they, they really exist, right, out there somewhere in some sense. Um, yeah, Marie, exactly. He does often talk about... He's, talk as if he's he's finding things out. He's discovering things rather than making stuff up. Um, so, again, especially given how directly autobiographical that previous passage was, you can't help but ask. I can't help but ask. Is this how it was? When Tolkien was inventing his elf languages, is this how, what it was like? Is this him again through the veil of this fiction, just simply giving voice to his own experience, um, would he have said, you know, would the, you know, 20 year old Tolkien have said, if you had asked him at the time, um, you know, how is it, you know, I, aren't you making up languages? How is that going? Would he have said things like, I got a jolly, I got a lot of jolly new words a few days ago, right? This new language is coming through. Um, and I'm trying to figure out its relation. I think I can see its relationship uh, to Erisaean, right? Uh, is that the way that he would have talked? I, I kind of suspect that. Um, uh, I kind of suspect that he might have. Again, it's like how he talked throughout his life. So I'm not yet convinced that we've shifted away, shifted away from autobiography, and into fantasy yet. Right. Now, of course, several of you are pointing out, obviously, differences. It's not like it's completely, it's like it's actual, literally autobiographical. Like, this totally happened to me, right? Um, uh, especially, I mean, obviously, as, as, as I'm sure most of you know, Tolkien's father died when Tolkien was, what, two? I mean, he was very, very young. Um, uh, Elbowin is, is, uh, grows up without his mother. Elbowin's mother dies in childbirth. Um, Tolkien grew up with his mom until she died. I mean, he was still young. He was orphaned when he was still young. Um, but he still did grow up and was raised and taught by his mom for many years alone um, because his dad died not quite at his birth, but as far as he was, you know, as far as his own memories are concerned, pretty close to it. Um, so again, it's not like it's exactly autobiographical in, in, uh, in, in, in events, but, um, it, it's again. It's about Albowin's experience and his perceptions that really that really strike me. Um, okay, more. Um, let's keep going on. It depends how far you went back," said the elder Errol. 
If you went back beyond the Ice Ages, I imagine you would find nothing in these parts, or at any rate a pretty beastly and uncomely race, and a tooth-and-nail culture, and a disgusting language with no echoes for you, unless those of food noises. Would you? said Alruin. I wonder. Anyway, you can't go back, said his father, except within the limits prescribed to us mortals. You can go back in a sense by long, by study, long and patient work. You had better go in for archaeology as well as philology. They ought to go well enough together, though they aren't joined very often. Good idea, said Alboin. But you remember long ago, you said I was not all bone. Well, I want some mythology as well. I want myths, not only bones and stones. These are the three, uh, the three things that Alboin connects together, right? To really get in touch with the past, you need to have uh, bones, stones, and and flesh, right? The bones are the language, the stones are the archaeology, and the 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 meat is myth, right? Story, mythology. uh, that's okay. That's really cool. Um, notice how notice the the disjunction right here. Would you? I wonder. Right. Um, yeah, he's not at all sure. Right. He's not at all convinced. Notice that his father is articulating essentially the modern myth of progress. Right. The modern myth of progress says the further back you go, the more brutish and simplistic human language culture and uh, um, uh, and uh, you know uh, physical as well as uh, as well as uh, you know, material culture as well as uh, social culture would get right the further back you go the more crude everything gets um, so yeah tooth and nail culture disgusting language in an uncomely race I wonder says Alboin Alboin is clearly not convinced he sort of thinks that if you go back, you might find, uh, you might find something together. Um, and yeah, yeah, Thomas, exactly. The link between philology and mythology in the context of his career. Yeah. Again, we're still in autobiography, right? And again, even this, uh, again, are we talking about the, the fantasy story of time travel? Yes. Yes. We're clearly setting that up, right? Alboin's desire to go back, his father saying you can't go back, him wondering what you would really find if you did go back, his desire to go back and see, right? I want to go back and experience what these old, you know, what what uh, you know what what the, these these older times were really like. Um, but at the same time, are we still autobiographical? Yeah, and possibly just as much autobiographical. Is this Tolkien articulating his own? primordial desire, you know, the thing which informed his own career as a scholar, his own studies in philology and mythology, not so much archaeology, um, though he sort of acknowledged the, the importance of it, right, but he never studied it himself. Um, yeah, I mean, that des- the desire that, that uh, Alboin articulates of wanting to go back and see, wishing he could just go back and see Right to hear them speak their own language, to uh, to to see their culture with his own eyes, to to hear their stories with his own ears. That's what he wants, right? That's uh, that's what he that's what he wishes for. And did Tolkien wish for that? Yeah, yeah, I, definitely he did. 
and I think we can see this, especially in Tolkien's early poetry. Um, we're going to get to some poetry next week. Yeah, I love uh, when I did the Tolkien's poetry class um, in the Signum Tolkien uh, 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 studies program, um, which was an awesome class. One of my most one of my most favoritest classes I've ever done. Um, but uh, when I did that, I did a bunch of the poems from this book, from The Lost Road, uh, in that class. And uh, so I'm excited to, to get to them sort of organically as we go through here. Uh, we'll talk about those next time. Um, anyway, okay. So, so once again, we see the autobiographical and the, um, and the fantasy marching still kind of side by side here, right? Um, then we have this poem that came through he he's not just getting languages anymore right we do get here here now we get a shift where instead of just speaking as if his language creation process was one of language discovery rather than language invention right um he's gone beyond that now the dreams in which these words came through to him from wherever it was they were coming from um, are now sending him other things, right? He, other things are coming through, including snippets of things in languages he already knows, like Anglo-Saxon, right? Um, and that's a different kind of thing, right? Why is he getting Anglo-Saxon verses in his sleep, right? He can think of some naturalistic re explanation for that, right? Hardly surprising that somebody like him would dream of Anglo-Saxon verses, and yet it feels like something coming through again. And so when that starts happening, um, it ceases to sound like a question of him sort of, I don't know what, eavesdropping on a different world, right? Hearing snatches of their language and putting it together. Now it sounds like something's actually communicating with him, right? Someone's trying to tell him something. Um, and I, I started here with the, uh, the modern English translation that Tolkien gives of the Anglo-Saxon verses. Thus said Alfwina the far-traveled, There is many a thing in the west regions unknown to men, marvels and strange beings, a land fair and lovely, the homeland of the elves and the bliss of the gods. Little doth any man know what longing is his whom old age cutteth off from return. He suddenly regretted translating the last two lines, but this is when his dad is really old. His father looked up with an odd expression, the old no, he said, but age does not cut us off from going away, from, from forced, from forthseeth. That's the going away, right? There is no eftseeth. We can't go back. So you've got forthseeth and eftseeth, right? Going away and, co and coming back. There is no eftseeth. You can't come back. You need not tell me that, but good for Alfwina Albion. You could always do verses. Damn it, as if he would make up stuff like that, just to tell it to the old man, practically on his deathbed. His father had, in fact, died during the following winter. Albuin is very frustrated, right? Because his father doesn't get it. His father still thinks he's making all this stuff up, right? That the way that when he talks about words coming through and all that stuff, that he's, that, that's merely a, a kind of a, a, a poetic fiction, right? Um, his own sort of whimsical way of, exp of of explaining or talking about his own invention process. And so here he was trying to tell his father the next level, right? 
yeah, stuff keeps coming through, but I think there's somebody trying to deliver me a message. Here's what the message was. And his father just thinks he made up this poem, right? Um, and is trying, presumably, to send his father a message through telling him this poem that he made up, right? Um, uh, the f- smile of his father at the reference to the name Alfwina, right, is of course in reference to the earlier conversation where he, the father, tells Alboin that his name means Alfwina, right? His name would have been Alfwina in Anglo-Saxon, elf friend. That's the name, meaning of his name. So the fact that the verses that he made up are a quotation from Alfwina, um, which is what Alboin's name means itself, I mean, there's no, there's every reason to make the error that Oswin is made, right? It's a perfectly plausible error. It sounds like the message that Alboin has himself made up. And instead, what Alboin is attempting to communicate is, I received this message, and it kind of sounds like it's from me, <laughs> right? But it's not from me, and I don't get this. Um, but look at what it says. There is many a thing in the West regions unknown to men, marvels and strange beings, a land fair and lovely, the homeland of the elves, and the bliss of the gods. What is that? What do those lines give us? Those lines give us a later description of Valinor, a memory of the undying lands in the West, of Elvenhome and Valinor in the West, from the perspective of a country whose active, you know, of, of a culture whose active legends no longer include any stories about it directly, right? We're not in the world of Numenor anymore. We don't retain the memory of, you know, the struggle between the Noldor and Morgoth and all that stuff. We don't, we don't, we don't know them anymore. We don't even know their names anymore. It's just, but the rumors of that strange land in the West, um, the fairness and loveliness of the land, the fact that it's the homeland of the elves and that the bliss of the gods dwells there, that, that concept lingers and remains in whatever time Alfwina, who, who is being quoted and whose quotation is coming through to Alboin in his dream, whenever that was, they still retain this image. And so then what, what, do, what do we get after that? Little doth any man know what longing is his whom old age cutteth off from return. Little doth any man know what longing is his whom old age cutteth off from return. Return to where? Um, And longing for what? In the context of that first sentence about Valinor and the undying lands in the West, right, we might come into the assumption, you know, so coming from that first sentence through little doth any man know what longing is his... I'm ready for, like, finish this sentence, right? In the context of the fall of Numenor and all this stuff, I'm thinking, little doth any man know what longing is his uh, who, what, who looks out at the sea, right? Maybe it's a sea longing. Maybe it's uh, who gazes down the straight path but can't walk on it, right, or something like that. I mean, right, are we, we're talking about the longing for the West? Clear, obviously, right? Context of that first sentence. Obviously, we're talking about the longing for the West, Right? right? Except whom old age cutteth off from return? It's like, whoa, I didn't see old age coming. Wait, we're talking about death? De- like mortality? That's what we're talking about? I mean, I assume that's the, the old age cutting people off. We're talking about mortality and old age and death, right? Okay, so, so the longing 
Little does any man know what longing is his when you get old and are about to die. Okay. Well, that's obviously still got some Numenorean relevance, though it doesn't seem to be exactly where we were headed in that first sentence, right? But okay. But what is old age doing? Right? Mortality, again, presumably, is what old age is doing. Cutteth off from return? To what? To your people? Like, I mean, you know, you go away and you don't come back, right? Um, sure. From return to the West? The Undying Lands? The homeland of the elves? To something else? Unknown? And I think the answer cutteth off from return. Return to what? Return to Numenor, right? That the beginning of this quotation recalls the connection with the elves, right? Recalls the West and the Undying Lands and the, the, you know, the last lingering memory of that myth. But then the end of the quotation seems to point to Numenor itself. And of course, I say that mostly because that's the trend of most of the stuff that is coming through to Alboin in these first two chapters, right? He keeps getting all this Numenorean stuff. Um, and it makes sense of that last sentence, right? Um, it's not just the longing for life when death is approaching. It's not just clinging to Middle-earth. It's that old age is cutting you off from return. Mortality is cutting you off from return to something. To the past, maybe. To his youth, possibly. Um, but, uh, um, But yeah, I, I think I think Numenor is kind of uh, is kind of lingering here. The message that he's getting right. So we get this is like uh, now he's getting like a, a, a Quenya telegrams, right? From wherever these things are coming from, right? Our Sauron Tule. So okay, I'll just read the English here because uh, we're running out of time. And Sauron. Can't translate that word, right? And Sauron came, Nahamna, they fell, Turkildi, under shadow, Tarkalian, war made, on powers, Lord of West, world broke, of Iluvatar, seas, poured in chasm, Numenor, down fell. Road straight, went westward, all now roads bent, Torkildi, eastward, death shadow, us is heavy, far away, now Atalanta. And he doesn't get Atalanta. Uh, he's probably sharp enough to notice the similarity between Atalanta and Ataltane here, right? But what he also perceives is that Atalante seems to be a name that he doesn't know, right? Um... Okay. Um, what do we see here? If he's getting messages, right? If uh, if he's not just eavesdropping on random conversation and picking up linguistic nuggets from the other side, if instead the other side is actively communicating with him, I keep calling it the other side, we don't know side of what, right? In the end, of course... Well, I say in the end as if Lost Road had an end. 
later in chapter two, we'll discover that it's time, right? Um, he wishes he could return back to the past and listen to people speaking in their own language. In his dreams, he is, because the people from the past are speaking to him in his dreams, right? Um, but my question is, what are they telling him? Right? Um, yeah, good. Sharon points out that uh, the quip begins with a, a classic Tolkien rhetoric sentence, right? And Sauron came, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, that line is in the Silmarillion, right? Absolutely. Um, but anyway, what's the message? What's the message? Yeah, Morgoth comes to Murray. That's a different line. There's, both lines are there. And Morgoth came when Fingolfin beats on the door. Um, but, and Sauron came uh, when, uh, when Arpharazon comes to challenge him. Um, but what happens? What, um, what's the message? It's the story of Numenor. We could put this next to the outline of the fall of Numenor. And we could actually do here the same thing that I did back then, right? What are the fundamental, like, what are the stories? Is this just like a fragment of narrative? Is the past reaching forward to Alboin and giving him exposition, <laughs> right? Um, not exactly, right? Um, but it's... Uh, it's, what does it emphasize? What does it tell us? Sauron came. They fell under shadow. They made war on the powers. The Lord of the West broke the world. The seas of Iluvatar poured in the chasm. Numenor fell. Numenor downfell. Right? Notice how that differs from the story of the fall of Numenor. Even just thinking about the passages that we were just looking at tonight for the first time. Right, um, we don't get the, and they invited Sauron, which was stupid, and brought the whole thing on themselves. Right, Sauron came, they fell under shadow, they made war on the power. So they're they're still Tarkalian. Of course, he doesn't know that word either, but it's the name of the king, right? Tarkalian made war on the powers. He's still doing something, right? I mean, it's he's the one who's making war, but they fell under shadow because Sauron came. Um, but uh, so we get the tragedy of Numenor right Sauron came fell under shadow war made on powers and then the consequences uh, the lord of the west broke the world the, sea, uh, the seas poured into the chasm Numenor fell but wait there's more it's not just the tragedy of Numenor that's half the story the other half of the story is the part that he keeps getting. Notice he keeps getting both halves, right? Um, it's the eagles of the lords of the west come upon Numenor. This is the thing that he keeps finding himself, so this keeps springing out of him, right? And it springs out of Elendil too in chapter 4, right? Um, so, yeah, the perception of the tragedy, right? That's one thing, but that's not the whole story. The other half of the story is about the straight road, 
right? The other thing that keeps springing, that keeps coming through to Alboin is this business about the straight road, right? That the world was bent, but a straight road remains. Um, road straight went westward, all now roads bent. Death's shadow, us is heavy, far away now, Atalanta. Atalanta, the downfallen, Numenor, um, is now far away. The death shadow, us is heavy. Um, by the way, I love the translation. Um, I love how he encapsulates the concepts that a single word means. Like, he could have translated um, uh, Octacare as made war, right? Why didn't he just say made war? Under shadow, Tarkalian made war on the powers. He could have just, I mean, that's how you would translate it. If you were translating into English, you'd say Tarkalian made war on the powers. How hard is that, right? There, it's right there. But that's not how he gives it to us, right? Instead, he shows us how that word means war made. And on powers is a different concept. Again, it's it's because it's an inflected language. Um, but I, I love the way that he conveys that. Um, that we get this sense of, um, like, us is heavy, right? Um, death shadow, us is heavy. It's not just the shadow of death. The shadow of death is a phrase, but it's not... Uh, the phrase, the shadow of death. It's Nuruhuine. And of course, if we are looking at Nuruhuine, we should be remembering Unuhuine, under shadow. They fell under shadow. And since they fell under shadow, and then the Numenor fell down, uh, or it down fell, excuse me, now death shadow, us is heavy. Um, really, uh, Really, really cool stuff. Um, yeah, Kelly uh, Gottschung is asking, are these words given to him? Are they giving him to, to him the myth that he was looking for? Yeah, Kelly, that's exactly what we got. That thing that he said he wanted, right? To hear with his own ears their languages, to, to get, not just to have bones, right? But to get the meat, to get the, to, to get the mythology and the legends. He's getting it, Right? And the two myths that he's getting are A, the tragic fall of Numenor as it fell under the shadow and then then fell, down fell beneath the sea, but the existence of the straight road. It's lost, right? All the roads are now bent, but the road still went straight, goes straight westward. The death shadow is heavy on us. Numenor, Atalante, the downfallen is far away, but that straight road is still there, right? And still exists. Um, so, Kelly, the really cool thing that we get in this time travel story, the time travel hasn't happened yet, right? I mean, our protagonist, Alboin, is still in the modern day. And yet, the time travel is already happening, right? He says, I wish I could travel in time so that I could encounter these cultures, you know, directly. And he is encountering these cultures directly because they're coming to him, right? Time travel is already happening. So when he's going to go on his journey, he finds that he already, you know, he's, he, he already is on his journey. Um, his journey has already begun, which is how a good time travel story should work because it's a time thing. Uh, anyway, 
But of course, it's not just him, right? He shares this stuff with his son, Audowin. He tramped on. It's Audowin, of course. Dreams, he thought, but not the usual sort, quite different, very vivid, and though never quite repeated, all gradually fitting into a story, but a sort of phantom story with no explanations, just pictures, not a sound, not a word, ships coming to land, towers on the shore, battles with swords glinting but silent, and there is that ominous picture, the great temple on the mountain smoking like a volcano. And that awful vision of the chasm in the seas, a whole land slipping sideways, mountains rolling over, dark ships fleeing into the dark. I want to tell someone about it and get some kind of sen- and get some kind of sense into it. Father would help. We could make up a good yarn together out of it. If I knew even the name of the place, it would turn a nightmare into a story. Um, of course, you see what's happening, right? Alboin is being given the bones, and Audoin is being given the flesh, right? Um, Alboin will be the ears, and Audoin will be the eyes, we are told. Um, but of course, to this point in the story, they've never spoken, right? Neither of them knows that they both have dreams. Audoin is kind of hoping he could possibly maybe tell his dad about his dreams so they could make up a story about it, right? Uh, Alboin had just been thinking about the dreams and now this choice that's been put before him whether he wants to travel in time and take his son with him, but he has to choose right um, and he chickens out talking to Alduin about it bef- right before Alduin goes out on this trip and then of course we learn uh, this tramp rather, and then of course we learn that Alduin, far from being sympathetic to the, on the subject of dreams, is having them himself and wishing he had somebody to talk to about them so that that um, that 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 connection between them and yet the uh, the the distance is clearly um, clearly clearly a crucial element. Um, so how does this um, how does this time travel work? What is up with this time travel? Let's look at that a little bit. We'll uh, probably finish after this. Yeah, I think we'll finish after this. We'll save the Numenorean stuff for next time. We'll pick up there. All right. How does the time travel stuff work? Well, one the first clue we get here is his own connections. Uh, this is his father explaining to him. Well, I might have called you Alfwina, of course. That is the old English form of it. I might have called you that, not only after Alfwina of Italy, but after all the old, all the elf friends of old. After Alfwina... King Alfred's grandson, who fell in the great victory of 937, and Alfwina, who fell in the famous defeat at Malden, and many other Englishmen and Northerners in the long line of elf friends. But I gave you a Latinized form. I think that is best. The old days of the North are gone beyond recall, except insofar as they have been worked into the shape of things as we know it, into Christendom. So I took Albion, Alboin, for it is not Latin, and not Northern, and that is the way of most names in the West, and also of the men that bear them. Notice what we're getting from this, right? I took your name from a long line of elf friends, right? There are all these elf friends in different traditions, right? There's the Old English form, there's the Latinized form, but the elf friends have continued in this long line, right? And they influence the present, right? Um, They've been worked into the shape of things as we know it, right? Right? the names in the West and the men that bear those names 
are not Latin and not Northern, right? But sort of the, the, the inheritors of both of those traditions. So the seeds that are being planted here in this passage in the story is this sense of continuity, right? There's Alboin, our protagonist, and his connection to the Lombardic Alboin, after whom he was named. Um, and then there's Alfwina and the series of Alfwina and Elf friends stretching forward and backwards over time. And so we're being invited to see Alboin as a part of that um, continuum, right? This tradition of Elf friends, which are in some way connected to each other. Okay. Um, the real thing was the feeling the dreams brought more and more insistently, and taking force from an alliance with the ordinary professional occupations of his mind. Surveying the last thirty years, he felt he could say that his most permanent mood, though often overlaid or suppressed, had been since childhood the desire to go back. To walk in time, perhaps, as men walk on long roads, or to survey it, as men may see the world from a mountain, or the earth as a living map beneath an airship. But in any case, to see with eyes and to hear with ears, to see the lie of the old and even forgotten lands, to behold ancient men walking and hear their languages as they spoke them in the days before the days, in the days before the days, when tongues of forgotten lineage were heard in kingdoms long fallen by the shores of the Atlantic. See how different his idea of the past is from his father's idea of the super crude people with the super crude language and the super crude culture, right? Back in the Ice Ages. His concept of it is really very different. But this desire to go... So his... The core of Alboin's story is a longing for the past, right? Longing to hear these things. And of course, as we've already been seeing, he's already hearing them. That's what the dreams have been doing. So the dreams have been instilling this longing in him but they've also been kind of satisfying it in a sense and then he gets an offer a tall figure appeared as if descending an unseen stair towards him for a moment it flashed through his thought that the face dimly seen reminded him of his father I am with you I was of Numenor the father of many fathers before you I am Elendil that, in, that is an Arisaean elf friend, and many have been called so since. You may have your desire. What desire? The long-hidden and the half-spoken to go back. Eftsith. I will... I am telling you, you can have that longing to go back, that longing which nobody can describe, that longing for Eftsith, which is denied to mortals. Um, you can have... You can go back. But that cannot be, even if I wish it. It's against the law. It is against the rule. Laws are commands upon the will and are binding. Rules are conditions. They may have exceptions. Love that distinction between law and rule. Law is a command upon the will and is binding. No exception to the law. Rules have exceptions. They're merely conditions under which things operate. Okay, um, so what do we learn? He meets and encounters Elendil, right? Elendil comes and speaks to him. So here, here's his desire already fulfilled, right? You may have your desire. He could also just as well say, you are having your desire, right? 
Hey, I'm Lendl of Numenor here, right? Here to speak to you in, lang in uh, you know, in, in, in my language and, you know, what you see my culture and everything. Uh, so you, you are having your desire. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go back in time. But of course, note, notice also what he emphasizes. He picks up on um, the Alfwina thing, right, that we were looking at before. Al th that concept which was merely uh, implied in that passage about Alboin's name. This, well, at least a, 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 a tradition of people named Elffriend, right, in different cultures and stretching forward over time. And here's Elendil saying, hey, my name's Elffriend. Your name's Elfriend, my name is Elfriend, right? Except my name is Elfriend in Erisaean, and I'm from Numenor. Oh, and I'm your ancestor, right? I was of Numenor, the father of many fathers before you. I believe that means you're my, you're my descendant, right? I am your ancestor. So there's an actual family connection between them. I ask you if you would have your desire. I would. You ask not how, or upon what conditions. I do not suppose I should understand how, and it does not seem to me necessary. We go forward as a rule, but we do not know how. But what are the conditions? That the road and the halts are prescribed, that you cannot return at your wish, but only, if at all, as it may be ordained. For you shall not be as one reading a book, or looking in a mirror, but as one walking in living peril. Moreover, you shall not adventure yourself alone. Okay. This bit gives us more than anything else that we get in The Lost Road. More than anything else, this, this passage gives us a glimpse of what the plan was, right? Uh, remember, of course, all this started because Tolkien uh, uh, lost the coin toss, right? Uh, instead of doing, you know, he's not going to do a space travel story. He's going to do a time travel story. So he, he's, he's been assigned to write a story about time travel. And obviously, first question, right? Okay, you're going to write a story about time travel. How are you going to do it? Going to make a time machine, right? Tolkien, as we see, rejects the time machine. They talk about a time machine. I love, it's, it's a Lendl here in this conversation, who says to him, no machine can conquer time, right? Not how it works. Okay, so if you're not going to have a time machine, then what? What's your mechanism? How are you going to travel in time? Um, his answer? Not even going to talk about it, <laughs> right? Um, I don't suppose I should understand it, and it doesn't seem to me necessary to understand it, Albowin says, right? Not curious about the mechanism, I just want to go. Um, I love Alboin's addition there, though. We go forward as a rule, but we don't know how, right? We all travel in time constantly, right? We travel into the future one minute at a time. I don't understand the mechanism for that. How is it that human beings all travel forward at the approximate pace of 24 hours a day, right? We're all traveling through time. How are we doing it? You know, by what mechanism do we travel through time? I don't know. If I don't know that, how am I, how, why would I think that I should be able to explain? So it's, you know, I mean, you can call it a dodge, but I don't think it's a dodge. I mean, I think that, uh, because I don't think he's going to entirely dodge it. I don't think, rather, he plans to entirely dodge the mechanism. Instead, he's pointing out that it's not going to be just a crude mechanical thing. It's not just going to be a machine. 
do you build and you step into the machine, you step out of the machine, and there you are in a different time, right? Um, it's going to take a wholly different approach. And it's, uh, it's going to um, be like the way that normal time travel happens, right? Daily time travel. Um, again, the implication here, this is not the conquest of man over nature, right? This is, again, not, not uh, uh, human beings have devised a way to break the rules, right? Or even to break the laws. No, no. Um, the law, it's, it's from the laws, them, it's from the rules themselves that the mystery comes, right? He doesn't understand the rules, so why should he understand the exception to the rule? He's told that there could be an exception to the rule. Traveling forward in time at a regular pace is the rule. Traveling backward is an exception to that rule. Um, but both of them, both the rule and the exception within this story operate on the same basis, right? On the same plane, as it were. Um, but there are conditions. He is interested in what are the conditions. Not the mechanism, but the conditions. Um, the road and the halts are described. Halts. So, okay, he's going to go to more than one time. right? He's going to make multiple stops in his trip through time. Clearly. That's one thing we learn there. The other thing we learn, he's not in control. Again, he's not. this is not the, 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 the conquest of man over nature. He's not driving the TARDIS, right? Um, he is following a path that has been prescribed for him. He can't return at his wish, but only as it may be ordained. How he goes is not up to him. Whether he comes back is not up to him. Why? Because he's going to be walking in living peril. This isn't something he's just going to see. Um, two of you, Thomas Kaluza and Margaret Joyce, are both thinking about uh, uh, Christmas Carol. And uh, there's clearly a similarity there, right? In Dream, uh, there's the, the traveling... The, in Dream, traveling back in time to see... The, you know, and being brought there by a power which is above and beyond him. It's not by his own power that... Um, that Ebenezer Scrooge goes back in time, right? But the main difference I would emphasize, uh, Margaret and Thomas, the thing I think is so important about the conditions that are being described there, is the difference is it's not like looking in a mirror. With Scrooge, it kind of is, right? In, in, a, in a Christmas Carol, um, he is himself. When he goes back into the past, when he goes you know, forward into the future... He is himself not visible, right? He can't interact with anything. He can only see it, right? He is merely a, a sort of a spirit and observer. That is not how Albuin's time travel is going to be. Um, uh, well, no, James, it's not an out-of-body experience. It's an in-body experience. That's the thing, right? He's going to be walking in living peril. Um, when he goes back into the past... He's not going to be an eyewitness to the past. He's going to be a participant in the past. That's how the time travel is going to work. So when he travels, like when he wakes up or however it happens, he is going to wake up as somebody from the past. He's going to, he's going to be personally involved. Is his own body going to travel? Is he going to be in other people's bodies? We don't know. We don't know. 
Um, <laughs> yes, Carrie, I was thinking of the same thing. Books are safe. Mirrors are safe. The road is not safe. Absolutely. Excellent. Uh, super kudos for the never-ending story reference. Um, very good. Very good. Um, yeah, good, James, exactly. Scrooge was having an out-of-body experience. Um, good, yeah. Alboin is not, distinctly not, going to be having. He's going to be having an in-body experience. Is it his own body? Is it going to be somebody else's body? We don't really know. But, oh, P.S., uh, bring your son. Or rather, your son is going to be coming, too. This is, a, um, this is a duo adventure, not a solo adventure. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's stop there. Um, uh, I have a little bit of time, not that much time, um, but uh, we started really late. And I want to let you guys get to bed. Thank you for, um, thank you for for your patience, staying up with me extra time since we started so late. Um, but I want to I want to make a clean stop here. Next time we'll pick up with chapters three and four. So we'll look at the Numenorean chapters, and then we're going to be looking at the unwritten, you know, Christopher's discussion of the unwritten chapters um, uh, for next time, uh, and of course the poems. Don't skip the poems. Read the poems because we're talking about those. Do I make myself clear? Thanks, everybody. Uh, So I will see you guys next week. I'll be back at home next week and hopefully back on the normal schedule. So in other words, only five to ten minutes late rather than 45 minutes late. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. Bye.